introduce this program, the fifth event put on by the Penn Women's Committee since its founding three and a half years ago, and the second in our series on lost women writers. For several years, a group of us have been reading and discussing poems, novels, and stories by women whose works, in our opinion, have been unjustly neglected or forgotten. This is the sense in which we call them lost. Many of these writings were at one time popular, highly regarded, even widely acclaimed, but are little known today. Of course, some men's writings are also neglected, but not in the same proportion or with such a long systematic history. For example, you may be surprised to learn, as we were, that a majority of English novels published in the 18th century, the century when the novel was being developed, were written by women. In fact, there were more than 100 18th century English women novelists who wrote more than 600 novels. Many were recognized and much admired in their day, but few have been heard of again, or not even in the studies of the novel, a form that women helped to forge. Similarly, right on down to our own time, you can often find works of fiction and poetry by women published in the literary journals, magazines, and contemporary anthologies of a given era. But once a new generation is in ascendancy, these women's works quickly disappear from the collections and anthologies that represent the literature of their generation. S judging from some of the works that we have been examining, this practice creates a scandalous impoverishment of our literature. As feminists from Virginia Woolf on have pleaded, and now I'm quoting from Dale Spender, who has written extensively on this subject, quote, a community which does not have the reflections provided by literature is one deprived of ways of understanding and shaping its world. And a community which has but a distorted reflection provided by a biased literature, such as one which gives undue authority to the male voice, is a community deprived of ways of creating balanced and fair meanings for its world. It's the end of the quote. In recent decades, feminist literary scholars have been working to restore some lost women writers to literary history, and a number of publishing houses have begun new series to reprint their works, notably Virago in England, Feminist Press, Rutgers University Press, and Oxford's Schomburg Library of Black Women Writers in this country, and Pandora Press in Australia, to name a few. But there are so many more excellent and exciting women writers whose works would enrich us in our literature if they were once again known that we hope this series may continue for a long time. Our dream is even larger to undo the prejudice against women writers that seems eventually and automatically to taint even the best works by women, perpetuating what Germaine Greer has called the transients of female literary fame. Last year, in the first program in our series, we read works by Marjorie Latimer, Storm Jameson, and Antonia White. The works we'll be introducing tonight were all, like last year's, written in this century, which means it didn't take very long for them to be lost. All are stories of uprootedness, social displacement, even exile, whether undertaken voluntarily or imposed, and I'm not now speaking of the ultimate displacement for a writer, having your work forgotten. 
Tonight's stories are all international in scope, reflecting the political upheavals, class warfare, and social turbulence that have characterized our century. Ivy Litvinov was a young English novelist who married a major Russian revolutionary whom she accompanied to Russia when the revolution broke out. Australian writer Eve Langley, child of an itinerant laborer and the disinherited daughter of landed gentry, set off in men's clothes to earn her keep as an itinerant farmhand herself. Helen Adam is a Scottish lyric poet who has led a precarious life in her adopted United States. And Bessie Head, born in South Africa to a white mother and black father, chose exile in Botswana to escape apartheid. All of these writers responded to the displacement in their lives with a remarkable and admirable independence and verve, qualities which animate much of their writing, even though the lives of several of them were touched with tragedy and came to unfortunate ends. Of course, it is not only in this century that the phenomenon of displacement has shaped women's lives. The theme is as old as Eve, as familiar as the biblical Ruth following her mother-in-law Naomi into exile, as common as the many cultures through the ages all over the world in which newly married women, many of them still children, must leave home and family to live far away among their husband's people. This thematic familiarity, as well as our common language, helps explain why the lives portrayed in tonight's selections, however unfamiliar to us in detail and texture, give us the rewarding sense of recovering something precious that has been lost. Our first selection is Ivy Litvinov's story, Holiday Home. Ivy Litvinov was born Ivy Lowe in the Kensington section of London in, in 1890. Her father was Cambridge-educated, Jewish, and a friend of H.G. Wells, and her mother was the daughter of an Indian army colonel. When Ivy was five years old, her father died of influenza, and her mother remarried and took Ivy and her two sisters to live with a stepfather she detested. In her 20s, just before the First World War, Ivy left her mother and stepfather's house and went off to live in Hampstead and work in an insurance company. She published two novels and became part of a literary circle that included D.H. Lawrence, and she fell in love with Maxim Litvinov, a Russian revolutionary and leader of the Leninist faction of exiles in Great Britain. In 1916, at age 26, that she married Litvinov, and within two years, a son and a daughter had been born, and the revolution had taken place. Thus, Ivy found herself in the Soviet Union. Maxim Litvinov was a short, plump man, 13 years older than Ivy, a brilliant politician and statesman who, during the 36 years of their marriage, served under Lenin and Stalin as diplomat and foreign minister in England and Washington. Through her marriage, Ivy became an intimate witness to the making of Soviet and world history and to life among the famous and powerful. As Maxim's political fortunes fell, she and her family were many times in peril, but she remained curiously detached politically. Her devotion was to literary life, and her dreams were of literary recognition. The struggle to write fiction was her overriding preoccupation. She was asked many times to write her memoirs, but refused, saying she was not interested in politics and could only write of, quote, intimate things. 
Writing did not come easily to her. Her production was small, the work painfully rewritten and revised many times. At one time, at one point, she tried the new and then daring his hypnosis and managed to write a detective no novel which remained unpublished since many of the characters resembled recognizable government figures. <laughs> Ivy's relation with Litvinov had its difficulties and she took lovers, many of them women. During the closing years of his life, when he had been dismissed by Stalin, she stood by him and he advised her on his deathbed, English woman, go home. Finally, in the mid-60s, when Ivy was in her 70s, some friends of John Cheever's, whose stories Ivy's daughter had translated, visited Ivy in Moscow and took her stories to Rachel McKenzie, the editor at the New Yorker, who published them. She died at 87 in England in 1977, leaving drafts of more stories going back over 20 and 30 years, unearthed by her biographer, John Carswell. Holiday Home, a segment of which you will hear tonight, first appeared in The New Yorker in 1970, and later in her only story collection, She Knew She Was Right. Phyllis Raphael will read the story. Because of uh, constraints of time, I'm only going to read the second half of this story. The story takes place in a holiday home, a resort for workers in the Russian countryside. In the first half of the story, the heroine, Nina Petrovna, a woman in late middle age, a proofreader in a publishing company, arrives at the holiday home for a vacation, the Rosa Luxemburg holiday home. All year long, she lives in a crowded Moscow apartment with her daughter-in-law, son, son, and grandchildren. When she comes to the holiday home, she longs for a room of her own, but is told that she must share her quarters, even though there are empty rooms. She takes one of the empty rooms anyway, drags a mattress into it, and the director of the home throws up his hands and allows her to keep it, but warns her that eventually she will be joined by a roommate. And now I will proceed in Ivy Litvinov's words. Nina Petrovna had enjoyed the privacy of a room to herself for a whole fortnight, but she knew another contingent was expected any day and wondered with trepidation what sort of a woman her roommate would be. There had been a moment of hope when she discovered at the very end of the corridor a tiny room, the merest closet, with, however, a bed, a chair, and a small table in it. There was no wardrobe, only a few hooks on the door, and nowhere to wash. Whoever lived there would have to go to the bathroom for that. But daylight streamed through a fair-sized window, and Nina Petrovna cursed herself for her lack of enterprise. Why had she not looked about her instead of blundering into the first empty room? How happy she could have been in this bright closet all by herself. The bed was already made up, and the mandatory carafe of water and glass stood invitingly on the table. Even now, perhaps it was not too late to make a bid for the tiny room. Might there not be some woman who would prefer the conveniences in other rooms to solitude without any conveniences whatever? Another visit to the director destroyed Nina's dream. The tiny room was being kept for a woman from Leningrad, a writer who needed a room to herself more than Nina Petrovna did because she brought a typewriter with her. 
All the director could promise Nina Petrovna was to leave her room to the last. He would try to put only one woman in beside her and would himself choose a nice, quiet person. A few days after this conversation, Nina Petrovna went up to her room to wash her hands before dinner and was met in the doorway by a strong whiff of cosmetics, a kind of potpourri of face powder, scented soap, cheap perfume, and the overpowering smell of pears, nail polish, of course. She closed the door gently and sat on the side of her bed for a moment. Looking around, she saw on the table beside the third bed the upright back of a heart-shaped mirror and knew that she no longer had a room to herself. In the dining room, she tried to guess which of the newest arrivals was her roommate, but they were spread in units and couples all over the room, and she gave up. After dinner, she hurried back to the third floor, hoping for time to be lying down for the afternoon nap before the stranger came in. The room was empty, but a maroon-colored dressing gown hanging over the footrail of the bed at the other side of the room and a pair of gaping felt slippers on the floor showed that the enemy had already entrenched herself in the citadel. Nina Petrovna was sure she wouldn't be able to sleep, but she had hardly got halfway through the first chapter of The Dark Flower when her eyes closed. She opened them to find that she had slept for over an hour, and the sound of regular breathing told her that she was no longer alone. The mound of a body under the counterpane on the third bed and a fluff of golden hair on the pillow, the face was hidden by the mirror on the table, helped Nina Petrovna to form an image of the sleeper. Vulgar, stout, she had to be. The drugstore smells, the mound under the counterpane pointed to that. Young, she could hardly be. Would a young woman come by herself to a dull, all but suburban holiday home and possess so frumpy and dingy a dressing gown, such squalid slippers. The sleeper moved restlessly, sat up in bed, and turned toward Nina Petrovna a short nose with capacious nostrils, densely black eyelashes, brows impeccably arched over good hazel eyes. The eyes opened wide, encompassing Nina Petrovna with a glance of almost tender kindliness. Olga Vasilovna Smirnova, said the stranger, we're roommates, so let's make friends. Nina Petrovna introduced herself. The new acquaintance prattled incessantly, and Nina Petrovna had to look into her face to answer questions so good-humoredly phrased that it would have been impossible to ignore them without being ungracious. Olga Vasilovna, talking all the time and not in the least embarrassed by the presence of another person in the room, pushed herself off the mattress and peeled a pink nylon nightdress over her head. Then groaning heavily, she sat up and began to stuff her feet into the disgraceful slippers. Nina Petrovna realized what had made these lose their shape when she saw the swollen, hammer-toed, and bunioned feet they scarcely contained. She turned her face to the wall while the process of washing and dressing went on, accompanied by short grunts and sighs. When Nina Petrovna heard her roommate hobble to the door and close it behind her, she got up herself and was ready to go down for the tea break in a few minutes. She found Olga Vasilovna waiting for her at the head of the stairs. Now fully dressed, she didn't look quite so fat, and Nina Petrovna connected the grunts and sighs she had heard with the fastening up of bra and girdle. The spreading stomach had been strapped into the shape of a football under a tightly stretched skirt, and the floppy breasts were lifted in firm outline beneath nylon ruffles in the V of her jacket. The terrible feet were squeezed into high-heeled shoes. In fact, the corpulent figure was quite trim. 
We must be friends, Olga Vasilovna said, tripping down the stairs beside Nina Petrovna, and she added with an intimate chuckle, for a month at least. As if pleased with the definition, she repeated it. Yes, friends for a month. Something in Nina Petrovna's expression made her add, of course, I mean the sort of friendship that is only shown in mutual forbearance. Civilized people ought to be able to share a room without interfering with one another, as if each of us was alone. Nina Petrovna agreed eagerly with sentiments that suited her so well, but Olga Vasilovna had something more to say that showed their ideas of non-interference were very different. And we need never be bored, she said. I brought a nice little transistor with me. We can have as much music as we like. They had reached the lobby, and Nina Petrovna stopped on the mat at the foot of the stairs. What, she cried, in the bedroom? That's not allowed, you know. And who's going to raise any objections? Everybody likes music, I think. I am, Nina Petrovna said firmly. Besides, next door to us, well, not exactly next door, but quite near, there'll soon be a writer. She's sure to object. A writer, a woman writer. This is a holiday home. Let her go to a writer's rest home, you know, for creative writers if she wants to bang away at her typewriter. But if you object, I won't so much as take the transistor out of my bag, unless, of course, you should want to hear some music once in a while. I said mutual forbearance, and mutual forbearance is what I mean to practice. Only I can't quite see why it's wrong for me to do something you don't like and right for you to deprive me of something I like. But she laughed cheerfully, and they passed into the dining room like old friends. The next day, the woman writer made her appearance in the dining room, a massively built elderly woman with short iron-gray hair, very blue eyes, and a wrinkled, weather-beaten face. At table and on garden benches, she was talked about freely, not merely because she was the latest arrival, but because there were people on the staff of the Holiday Home, and even a few guests who knew quite a lot about her. Her name was Ludmila Ivanovna Poleneva, common Russian names, but a grave elderly man who used the Russian language in a manner Nina Petrovna recognized as exquisite, and more surprisingly, an elegant young married couple never pronounced these names without a kind of fervent respect. Amid the usual holiday home chatter of blood pressure and the menu and the girl who changed her clothes three times a day, a guest could be heard telling her neighbor that the writer was a poet, none of whose verses had been published during the last 20 years, that she had been sitting, that is to say, in a camp under the Stalin regime, and that certain influential members of the writer's union had managed to secure a tiny pension for her and even hoped someday to get a discreet selection of her early poems published. Olga Vasilovna took a great interest in all this, partly because she took a great interest in practically everyone, and partly because she remembered having seen some of Poleneva's poems in typescript on her son-in-law's desk and even hearing them read aloud to an admiring circle of young people. She couldn't remember anything about them because she had been chiefly occupied in concocting a supper in the kitchen. This reminded Nina Petrovna that her daughter-in-law spent evening after evening typing out poetry, uh, poetry after a hard day at the office. Nina Petrovna had tried to read a page or two, but it was evidently part of a long poem, and the lines didn't rhyme, and anyhow, it was a long time since she had read, read any long poem, except for occasionally dipping into Eugenie O'Negan and trying to get her grandchildren to listen to some of the easier passages. 
Olga Vasilovna broke into her reverie by wondering aloud why Polenova should make such a sight of herself. Cotton stockings, sneakers, and that straight curtain of gray hair. Surely she could have afforded to get a perm before coming to a holiday home. Everybody tried to be as smart as she could in public. It wasn't as if she were plain. She had good features, clear, expressive eyes. I always say, said Olga Vasilovna, and said it again, I always say, a woman ought to make the most of herself at all ages. You too, Nina Petrovna, you have lovely hair. Why shouldn't you not dye it, of course, it's hardly gray at all till you look close, but just have it tinted to bring out the natural shade. It would take 10 years off your age if you were to have it nicely waved and buy yourself a lipstick. You don't even need to buy a lipstick. I, I've got an extra one I've only used a couple of times that would just suit your complexion. And really, Nina Petrovna, many a young woman would envy you your complexion and your figure. After all, living in the same room with a stranger of quite another level of culture had turned out not to be so bad as Nina Petrovna had feared. The liveliness and imperturbable good humor of Olga Vasilovna and her complete freedom from affectation acted like a tranquilizer on the suppressed but perpetual ir irritability of Nina Petrovna's nerves. Besides, she had soon discerned behind the unpromising vulgarity of her roommate's facade, a limitless expanse of natural tact that was better than any mere correctness. You can't upset me, she told Nina Petrovna, who had been afraid her bedside lamp would keep Olga Vasilovna awake in the night. Nina Petrovna could never sleep without reading for at least an hour in bed. Read all night if you want to. I'll just turn my back to you and shut my eyes. There's nobody I couldn't live with. I've lived for 15 years in the same room with my daughter and then with her and her daughter both. And I may say we've never had so much as an argument. We both know very well that people can't live so close without getting on each other's nerves sometimes. And we made a resolve simply never to speak when that happens. But isn't it hard to suppress your feelings all the time? It may be, but anything's better than coming out with something you might regret for the rest of your life. And thus, two weeks passed in Olga Vasilovna's month of friendship. The roommates strolled in the woods or visited the village shop. And the couple that looked so ill-matched, like two birds of different species, a modest brown-coated thrush and a pompous, iridescent-breasted powder pigeon seemed inseparable. Olga Vasilovna could somehow talk about herself without being a bore, and Nina Petrovna was never tired of listening to the long tale of another's life. After a while, she found herself confiding sorrows to a sympathetic ear, a thing she couldn't remember ever having done before. One day when they were resting, after their morning's walk on one of the green benches in the garden of the hostel, contentedly observing the return to the house of other walkers in twos, alone, and in small groups, Olga Vasilovna returned to what they had been talking about in the woods. A letter from home seemed to have disturbed her calm. If I had a room of my own, I'd never come to a hostel, she said bitterly. The mask of good humor slipped for a moment, and Nina Petrovna caught a glimpse of the grim reality beneath it. Olga Vasilovna sighed, one of those long, trembling sighs that seemed to come straight from a person's heart. Then the mask settled back into place, and she went on in her usual coaxing accents. We've been lucky, only the two of us, and we're both what you might call nice people. Sometimes such disagreeable, sometimes you have such disagreeable women, and try as you will to be pleasant, there's no softening them. Last year I was in with two like that simply competing to make life unpleasant, 
One of them was always running to the director to complain of me. I got up early and used all the hot water, or I washed my stockings in the basin, and they each had a transistor, and believe me, they each tuned into different stations at the same time. They hated each other even more than they hated me. You could have complained about that, Nina Petrovna told her. It's not allowed in the bedrooms. I never complain, said Olga Vasilovna shortly. I'm sure you wouldn't go running to the director if I turned mine on. I wouldn't have to, Nina Petrovna said softly. It was quite enough for me to tell you I didn't like it. Ah, if everybody was like us, there wouldn't be any wars, said Olga Vasilovna. Are you sure, Nina Petrovna asked her. In the flood of details, she was bursting to communicate. Olga Vasilovna had forgotten what it was she really wanted to tell her friend, but Nina Petrovna could see by the slightly confused and anxious expression of her face that she had not yet shaken off certain unpleasant thoughts. When Olga Vasilovna again broke the silence, her words didn't seem to have any direct connection with what had gone before. What she said was, it'll be a relief for them when I'm gone. You only think like that because you have to live in such unbearable proximity to one another, Nina Petrovna said. Not only, you can't help feeling how much easier their lives will be when you're dead. One less person to have to consider. That's natural. Everyone lives in the present and our children have plenty of worries. Of course, when we die, there'll be one less. Nina Petrovna knew how it rankled with her daughter-in-law that Irochka just entering the critical years of adolescence, had to sleep with her almost grown-up brother. She disliked it as much as Sonia could, but the question of having Irochka moved into her grandmother's room was never mentioned by either, though continually thought about by both. And the answer was that it would be altogether intolerable, not only for Nina Petrovna, but for Irochka too. Irochka would have a room to herself when her grandmother was dead, a room where she could have friends in the evening, do what she liked. They fell silent and took to watching the thickening procession of holidaymakers. Dinner would be ready in a quarter of an hour, and most of the guests showed on their faces pleasant expectation of what was a welcome event in the long, empty day. That's who I envy, murmured Olga Vasilovna at the appearance in the gateway of two female figures, one tall and slender, the other dumpy. They were never seen apart, and everyone knew, because the dumpy one told everyone at the first opportunity, that they had been living together nearly 20 years, that they were both teachers, though the short one was now on pension and could devote all her time and energy to one sole purpose, that of making life as smooth as possible for her friend. As they approached, a steely ray of light was reflected from objects dangling from the hands of the devoted one. These were soon perceived to be milk bottles full of clear water, which anyone who cared to listen was told triumphantly had been drawn from a distant well. Isn't the water in the house good enough, someone asked. At this, the taller lady, who at first hung back a little as if taking no interest in the question, moved smoothly ahead and entered the house in advance of her companion, who went on explaining that she would go every day for two bottles of water from this special well till she had accumulated enough to wash her friend's hair, which the tap water in the bedrooms did not suit. And off she scuttled on her short legs. Them, Nina Petrovna asked, they have something to live for. They need one another, and age doesn't matter to them. I don't think I envy them, Nina Petrovna said, but she sighed. The newlyweds emerged from the woods, he a few steps ahead, both hands deep in his trouser pockets, she hurrying after and managing with a deft movement to slip her fingers round his arm inside the elbow. The young man did not take his hand out of his pocket and stepped on doggedly as if he were alone. 
How soon, said Olga Vasilovna softly. They're bored, poor children, Nina Petrovna said. He is, you mean, Olga Vasilovna corrected. Nina Petrovna thought they should have gone to the seaside. There was nothing for them to do here, except, said Olga Vasilovna, smiling mischievously. Nina Petrovna frowned. Nobody ventured on a vulgar innuendo in her presence at the office, where she had gone straight from school. And by the time she had become the most respected member of the staff, everyone respected her austerity. Ribald laughter was checked at her appearance. Anecdotes hung in the air unfinished. And now, though she did at first frown, she caught herself sharing a bawdy insinuation with a vulgarian. But just then, another figure isolated itself from the crowd a powerfully built woman leaning on a stick but not bent, Ludmila Ivanovna Poleneva, the poet, whose typewriter was heard rattling almost every time the guests went out of their rooms into the corridor. In her other hand, she held a little way in front of her a wild iris with three sheathed buds just beginning to part from the stem. She passed close by Nina Petrovna and Olga Vasilovna, smiled a gracious, absent-minded smile at them, and seemed to extend the flower for their admiration. <coughs> That's who I envy, Nina Petrovna murmured, as Ludmila Ivanovna disappeared behind a column. Olga Vasilovna was sincerely astonished. Her? You're a hundred times better looking. You could be her daughter. If only you'd listen to me. She's always busy, said Nina Petrovna impatiently. They say she's working on a sonnet cycle. She says the day isn't long enough for her. Why doesn't she go to a writer's hostel, Olga Vasilovna grumbled. That's the place for her. She goes to one for a month every year, but she says she doesn't like to live long among writers. She says they talk too much. It's simply too expensive for her, Olga Vasilovna said sourly. They give her a month free, and then she comes here. Is it cheaper here? The director keeps that little closet for her gratis. They were in Leningrad during the blockade. I believe she was very kind to him. Anyhow, he seems to think the world of her. Lots of people do, I think. Yes, but not the right ones, or she'd be able to get her poetry published. I'm glad I shall be able to tell my children I've seen her, Nina Petrovna said, and checked the bitter reflection that in her place, Vanya and Sonia would have done more than just see their poet. I've already told mine, said Olga Vasilovna. I wrote to them yesterday. In two days, Nina Petrovna would be leaving the holiday home. Olga Vasilovna was in a pitiable state. What would she do without Nina Petrovna? Worse, what sort of new roommate could she expect? Nobody else would be so easy to live with as Nina Petrovna. I think you could make anyone easy to live with, said Nina Petrovna. Oh, don't say so. One doesn't meet tactful, pleasant people every day. I don't believe I've ever met a woman I could tell the things I've told you. I'm sure you've told them to at least a dozen other people. I've told you things about myself I've never told anyone else and never expected to be able to. Most women are so narrow-minded. Nina Petrovna knew this was true. Strange confidences had been exchanged. Anyhow, you'll soon be leaving yourself, she said. The last fortnight passes very quickly. Olga Vasilovna burst into tears. They've sent me an extension, she sobbed, always writing and saying how they miss me, and now it's worth any money and trouble to keep me away another month. Not for anything in the world could Nina Petrovna had gone over and put her arms around the weeping woman. Tears chilled her and she had to admit a mean resentment that she had been for so long cooped up with a person so far from her real interests 
one with whom she could not discuss Galsworthy and Iris Murdoch, not to mention such writers as Solzhenitsyn and Postovsky, for Olga Vasilovna never read anything but the illustrated magazines supplied to the guests of the holiday home. Perhaps if Nina Petrovna had not always been seen in her company, she might have got to know Poleneva and become one of the small circle privileged to hear her poetry read aloud once a week. But that was nonsense, of course. What was there in her to attract the attention of a poet? My son got my time extended too, you know, she said kindly. It's only natural. Everybody wants as much freedom as they can get. It's you who taught me to understand that. The very next day, returning to the room after their morning walk, the friends simultaneously caught sight of traces of a stranger. On the middle bed lay a bulging net bag. Beside it on the floor, a battered suitcase and a pair of worn shoes. A new person in the room, cried Olga Vasilovna. We're like Robinson Crusoe seeing Man Friday's footprint in the sand, said Nina Petrovna, but got no response. I shan't have a single night to myself after you've gone. Perhaps it'll be somebody nice, said Nina Petrovna consolingly. Somebody very shabby, whatever else she is, said Olga Vasilovna with distaste. Well, I'm dowdy enough, but you managed to get over it. As if there could ever be anyone like you again, said Olga Vasilovna lugubriously, but added more cheerfully, it's a good thing in a way. I shan't be able to cry in the night with a stranger in the room. The newcomer made her appearance in the bedroom only after supper. She was youngish, almost girlish, pale-eyed with a thin neck and a stringy tail of hair tied at the back of her head. All introduced themselves to one another as, cheerful as, they, as cheerfully as they could manage. The third inhabitant of the room named herself dejectively as Elizaveta Matievna. That's much too long, said Olga Vasilovna. I shall call you Liza. You're young enough to be my daughter anyhow. The girl smiled dolefully, and Nina Petrovna reminded herself with satisfaction that for all their intimacy, Olga Vasilovna had never ventured to call her Nina. After they were in bed and Nina Petrovna had closed her book and switched off her light, a suppressed sob came from the middle bed. Olga Vasilovna was out of her own bed in a minute and bending over the newcomer. Don't cry, she said. We know how you feel, all alone with two old women. It's a shame, but don't cry. Tomorrow I'll show you where there's a tennis court and you can make friends with people your own age. Do you play tennis? The girl was making obvious efforts, wiping her eyes and giggling nervously to overcome her tears. She did play tennis, but very badly. Nobody would want to play with her, and she hadn't brought a racket. Olga Vasilovna assured her that rackets were to be obtained, and they'd be delighted to play with her. Not many played tennis at all. Partners were in great demand. What about a little music, Nina Petrovna said bravely. Why not get out that transistor of yours, Olga Vasilovna? A magic spell of kindness and jazz spread itself in the room, and Nina Petrovna actually fell asleep to the yearning strains of the blues. The next morning, she asked Olga Vasilovna if they had played long, till the people next door rapped on the wall, said Olga Vasilovna demurely, but I went and asked them if they wouldn't like to come and listen, and they did, so we played Liza to sleep too. You are a marvelous woman, said Nina Petrovna with conviction. Liza, you're going to have a lovely holiday.
Eve Langley was born in 1904 in Australia. Her mother, who came from a landed farming family, was disinherited when she married a landless itinerant laborer who died when Langley was a child. But he remained for her a glamorous pioneer. Langley completed an elementary education in country schools before working as a domestic and then as a printer's assistant. When still a girl, she constructed for herself a vivid ancestry, part Jewish, part Roman, part Greek, part Scythian. Her first novel, The Pea Pickers, set in the 1920s, is drawn directly from her life. It is the story of two sisters who dress as men and set out to seek excitement, love, and poetry, picking apples and peas in Gippsland, the land of their mother's people. Langley called these days, which provided the source for all her writing, her primavera. Throughout this novel, and in all her work, runs the struggle between the longing to love and be loved, which she uh, saw as feminine, and the desire for the pure and solitary life of the poet, which she saw as masculine. In the 1930s, she moved to New Zealand, where she married a painter. He lived for much of the time in his studio in Auckland, while Langley remained alone with their three young children outside the city, writing and desperately short of money. She grew increasingly depressed and afraid. In 1942, The Pea Pickers was published and acclaimed as the work of a major new Australian writer. Even so, less than a year later, before she was 40, she was committed to a psychiatric hospital where she was kept for seven years. She never fully recovered from that experience. After her release, with ties to her family severed, she lived alone in rented rooms, binding books for the public library, and writing. Her second novel, White Topee, appeared in 1954. Her third novel, Wild Australia, was never published, and Langley officially changed her name to Oscar Wilde, in whose name she said she was better able to accept the rejection of her work. That last novel, by the way, was about um, somebody named Oscar Wilde, who was born on the same day and year as, the, as Eve Langley. Thereafter, she returned to Australia, where she lived for 20 years as a hermit in the mountains outside Sydney. She died in 1974 at age 70, alone in her mountain hut, leaving many manuscripts, including 10 novels, poetry, prose sketches, plays, and voluminous notes scribbled on brown paper and cereal boxes. Sounds too familiar. <laughs> many of these details are drawn from a new biography called The Importance of Being Eve Langley by Joy Thwaite, which will soon be published in Australia. Glenda Adams will read from The Pea Pickers. Um, the Pea Pickers opens with the sisters, Eve and June, about to leave their old home. Eve is sitting in the poet's corner, as her end of the kitchen table is called. Just two words need explanation. One is the word mia mia, which is an Aboriginal word for hut, and the word mia, which is what the sisters call their mother. You can't hear? Okay. Is that better? 
Nothing mattered to us except the fact that we were going to Gippsland. At last we should see it through adult eyes. We were 18 and 19 years of age at the time. Now that we're going to Gippsland, we said, we must put off our feminine names forever. As we sat that night around the fire, myself in the poet's corner, little Mia opposite, and my sister sitting on a low box between us, playing on her sonorous violin all the Gippsland tunes and old dance melodies that our father had played on the plains of New South Wales, we considered the question of names. And at last, it was decided that my name should be Steve, because the comic literature of the Australian bush has always had a Steve in it. And of course, we'd always loved Steve Hart in that bush-ranging song that Mia sang to us now and again. So I am Steve. We spoke of this new person as a long, crooked-moustached fellow who didn't care much for women and was sure to end up living alone, a hatter in the scrub, through which he'd ride wildly and with passionate sorrow on mournful wet nights. By at the gallop he goes and then, by at the gallop comes back again. Late in the night when the fires are out, why does he gallop and gallop about? They said to me, That's, that'll be you, Steve. But cripes, I answered, I, I can't ride. Well, now we know why you gallop and gallop about. You can't ride. You don't know how to stop the horse, you see. But what about a name for you, I said to my sister, staring at her short, handsome figure clothed in old fawn riding breeches with a khaki shirt over her breast and a red handkerchief around her neck. She crossed her legs and said she didn't care what she was called. It is decided that June will take the name of Blue. In Gippsland, Steve and Blue are regarded as odd, dressed in men's clothing and working like men. However, they win acceptance and make friends among the Italian and Australian laborers. They live in a hut in the fields, and Steve falls in love with two youths, first Kelly and then Macca, and this relationship she calls one of the great Gippsland love stories. I stood in the sunshine beside the old tank at Avadrink. It was Sunday afternoon. The sun was shining on my strong round arms. I flexed them derisively in Macca's face. Well, are we going for a walk? You said you'd take me to a gully where I could hear the leatherheads singing. Well, all right, come along. He picked up his rifle and I followed him. It was a wooing just like Kelly's. I wondered how many bush girls on a Sunday like this one would be following Australian males armed with guns loaded against bird and beast. This was how the bush courted, man and woman, bird and beast. This was how they wooed. The male strode ahead through the gum trees and struck for some vague satisfaction of his own, and the woman admired because through admiration she struck at the man. I had hardly time to look at the leatherhead before it was lying at my feet, flung from the branch by death, clothed in a shivering mist of deep blue feathers from which its black eyes looked coldly and dryly past us. The gasping golden beak with its sharp tongue looked intimately of my own flesh. So that's a leatherhead. Why leatherhead, I wonder? Oh, it's only a local name. I don't know its real name. It's supposed to have a tough piece of skin under the feathers on the head. It needs a leather skin in this country, I, excla I exclaimed, brushing a swarm of mosquitoes off my arms. As I sat on the dry, twig-strewn ground, I made a little mia-mia from the thin sticks. I should like some day to marry and live in a house that would look over the sea, and all night I'd lie with my head on the arm of my love and listen to the water's broken voice on the shore. Steve, that's strange. I always thought that if I married, I should like my wife's head to rest on my arm all night. Yes, marriage could be beautiful. Instead of a procession of perambulators, I replied, and he laughed. A procession of perambulators. I'll remember that, he said. Let's go down to the sea now. And we rose, leaving the gully behind with a strange crop of forgotten peas, belonging, it seemed, to no one on the steep hillside. 
We climbed the hill up which I'd climbed in the wake of the feeding pigs some time before, and when I saw the broken tree on its summit, I sighed, remembering my lonely meditations that day. Stevie, Stevie, Stevie Talaran, Talaran. What is that, Macca? Those birds are, calling, are called peewits or gralini, Stevie. A flock of delicate black and white birds, shaped like little Greek oil lamps, flew overhead, crying in rich, rollicking voices, but faintly lonely. Stevie, Stevie, Talaran, Talaran. My name, Macca. Yes, Stevie, that's what they're saying. How perfectly they say it. But what would Talaran mean? It sounds like very old English. Among peewits and young pea pickers, Steve, it might mean I love you. My heart leapt, dragging me forward into a new existence. Stevie Talaran, said Macca, taking my hand. Sti silently we walked to the sea. Macca took a small pair of bathing trunks from his pocket and hastily put them on behind a bush. Then, casting his false teeth into his hat, he, wi he wiped his mouth with his hand and, turning his face away from me, waded out until the water was deep enough to dive into. I watched him bobbing up and down in the grey water with the toy-like movements, the sense of celluloid given by the swimmer far out. Uh, Stephen Blue moved to the Alps of New South Wales to pick hops, leaving Macca behind. His passion, never a match for Steve's, has waned. Uh, their wages are erratic, and they're always short of money and always hungry. The hop picking started that very afternoon. It was then that the unkindliness of work showed itself to me. To come here like a child and walk around, staring at the strangers, going from fire to fire, laughing and joking, that was the ideal life, although it held a certain deadness of expectancy in it. Sorrow, dullness, quietness and maturity began when the frames of the bins were put up and their bag bottoms shaken out in a paddock down near a broken maize crib where purple castor oil plants stood around, tall and spiny. The first thick and beautiful vine fell from the wire with a loud rustle like that of a flying serpent and it was a pleasure to pick up but soon with quick greedy movements it had to be picked to pieces and the dark leaves had to be cleaned out of the bin because if they were too thick there the measurer refused to touch the hops and that attractive and elfin dampness which we'd loved early in the morning became tropically hot and moist at noon and a sickly inferno, a swampish vat in the late afternoon we shifted continually, one at each end of the clumsy, heavy bin, trying to hide from the sun in the darkness of the hop shades. Tired, languid and unhappy, I picked mechanically and tore down vines to the cries of Polo around us, and the grim, dark young Polo shouted with an antic twinkle in his eye, pick up your hops. Seeds and teens. Sensations and thoughts fell on my body in a rich rain so that I overran with romantic desires and poetry, but no one wanted to hear of it. Our cash was getting low and our clothes dirty, so in the weekend we thought we'd do some washing down at the river and at the same time keep a lookout for pumpkins and ripe maize to fill the larder. We lit a fire on a small sandy island in the middle of the river and boiled our shirts, trousers and socks in the tin while the river, full from shore to shore with purple ranges, sang a rusty song over quartz and mica beds, down through the willows, the poplars and the wattles. As we fed the fire, retreating back before the cascades of smoke, we noticed that beyond the river frontage lay a fine field of pumpkins and maize. How about a nice big dry pumpkin for tea, Bluey? And Blue said, too right, but wait till it's properly dark. We did all our washing but the dirtiest things. These we tied up in a bundle and deferred until another day 
The boiled clothes were fished out and set on sparse bushes to dry, and we sat by them, drowsing in the mother song of the river. When the dew began to make the air moist, we folded up our clothes and waited a while longer. The green maize in the paddock had lost its sunny gleam, leaf by leaf, and the little tobacco seed beds on the slopes of the grey hill had a fine mist of evening around them. Now was the hour. We left our hiding place and leapt out onto the largest pumpkin in sight. Well, Blue, we'll have to cook it here because we haven't got a saucepan to our names, and wouldn't they talk if they saw us cooking in a kerosene tin? Wrestling with the cold, rough stem, we tore the pumpkin free, then, bringing the kerosene tin with some water in it up to the bank of the river, we lit a good fire under it, throwing on large logs in our exuberance. Cutting up the pumpkin, we threw it in with a few tender maize cobs for good measure. The fire roared, throwing flames and shadows across the grass so dry and deep. How the pumpkin boiled. We sat laughing around the tin, talking about the good meal we were going to have, and of other nights when we'd come into this larder of nature's and eat more and more pumpkin. Then the grass rustled underfoot, and a harsh voice said, What are you two fellows doing with a fire here? This is my property. Did you know that? Standing to Bushman's attention, with one leg crossed over the other, we drawled that we didn't know it, being strangers here. Well, that fire must be put out. It's off the river frontage and on my property, and it's endangering it. Come on, put it out now. The flames danced around us, and our minds danced with them, performing some quick gymnastics, while the tall old farmer eyed us angrily. Well, come on, put it out. Suspiciously, what's in the kerosene tin? Our clothes, we're boiling them, you know, and soon we're going to hang them out to dry. Funny time to wash clothes. What, funny? Don't you know that clothes are best washed at night? And if you hang them out in the night air, they get a wonderful colour. They bleach, they blench, they flinch, they shake. Try hanging out in the night air yourself, sir, and you'll have a complexion like a lump of snow. Well, tip the clothes out now and throw the water on that fire. It's a positive danger to my property. That, uh, come on now, get to work. Ah, well, if this was his property, that must be his pumpkin. What a pity, a great pity indeed. And the point of contention was this. Does boiled pumpkin look like boiled shirt if it's hastily thrown onto a flaming fire? But pardon us, sir, if you'd be so good, we should like to finish boiling our clothes. You see, we're hop pickers from down the river, and if we don't get our clothes washed and dried tonight, we shall have to pick in the natural, you understand, as man to man. I see, but hurry up. Are the clothes in yet? Just a few. We want to add a few more. These here. I indicated a bundle of dirty socks, shirts, and unmentionables, which we'd felt too languid to wash. Well, here you are, lad. Put them in. Put them in, boy. And stooping, he picked them up and threw them in on top of the pumpkin. Ah, thanks, we said. And the fire blazed up merrily. The odour of cooked pumpkin and dirty clothes was fervent in the air. <laughs> now, just a few more minutes and they'll be ready to turn out. We needn't detain you, sir. We can quite easily put the fire out. No trouble, my boys. I'll just stand by in case you scald yourselves, said the farmer thoughtfully. We thanked him again and hunted around for our belongings before departing. Blue, have you seen my pocket knife? No, said Blue, but the farmer had. He remembered flinging them in with the clothes and said he was sorry, but the light was bad. We agreed with him. We said further that everything was bad and that washing at night was not very successful. He replied that he was glad to hear us agree and that from his point of view there were many occupations far more moral than our present one. Now, said he, come along and get the clothes out. They must be boiled by now. Turn them out on the grass and throw the water on the fire. At your service, sir. Blue, bring along a stick. With this, we pulled out our garments to which a mess of pumpkin clung. We averted our faces while we did this and took the can as far into the shadows as possible. 
But the farmer followed us and sniffed around the washing. Smells more like a dinner than clothing, he said. We lifted out large lumps of glutinous soap and pumpkin and gently agreed with him, saying that we were given to spilling much of our meals down our waistcoats, <laughs> since on occasion a particular kind of palsy of the limbs attacked us. He was sympathetic, saying that we seemed to be unfortunate in every way. <laughs> when we'd scooped out every dirty sock, piece of soap, knife, clothing and pumpkin from the water, we let it fall onto the fire, which went out with a savage hiss and many a crackling exclamation. The farmer gave us a civil good night and went off, leaving us to our oats. All this had taken place in a sort of natural amphitheatre, a dry, warm slope on which, unknown to us, lay many hop-picking lovers who had been highly entertained by our comedy. We now began to add to it by trying to explain the matter to each other and blaming ourselves heartily. Now look at our clothes, they're ruined, and what about that bar of soap? Yes, but what about my pocket knife? It's ruined too, look at the handle. And you said we'd have pumpkin for tea, dry golden pumpkin. Well, we've got it. It's embedded in our clothes and we can have pumpkin whenever we like and it'll always be dry and golden. Dragging our melancholy load of kerosene, tin and ruined clothing behind us, we crossed the stage and disappeared into the wings of the bush, chanting our sorrows all the way home. And long afterwards, the lovers left their dress circle and came down to the hop paddocks to circulate the fame of our comedy far and near. The cry for weeks afterwards was, what about a, nice, a bit of nice dry gold and pumpkin blue? Charlie Wallaby had the nervousness of a flash of lightning and a body like a blasted oak. Before him came his hat. It stuck itself soft and battered into groups and moved up and down following their conversation. It was old and green. Thin stripes of the original grey band were still sewn onto it and waved about in the wind. For years he'd been flinging it to his dog, Spot, and say, saying, go and fetch it, Spot, so that it was no longer the hat he fetched back but a battered and torn remnant. He always had a pocket full of walnuts and on the first day she met him, Blue wrestled with him in the paddock in front of a mob of cheering pickers and tried to get a nut from him. No man there had ever succeeded in wrestling a walnut from Charles, but at last, after a long, subtle struggle, Blue got one and we thought that that was a good omen. Under some trees at a point where the water had a deep bass voice that broke and faltered into something that approached speech, I saw the tent of the trapper Blackmore. It was laced up artfully in front and a round strong smell of apples ripe to their very hearts made the canvas seem too thick. Ah, the apple, the long untasted and satisfying apple. The trapper had cases of them within the tent for poisoning rabbits. I rushed home to the section where Blue sat stirring a decoction of parrot's legs and pumpkins with black stewed quinces to follow. Out upon the parrot and pumpkins too, Bluey, out upon the black quince, ich dien. I threw out the dessert and we ate the legs of the songsters. Yes, I was coming along the river bank and I passed Blackmore's tent and ah, what a smell, apples. Bluey, we'll go down with a bag tonight, just after dark. What a change from quinces, said Blue, I'm tired of the things. A warm white twilight came at length and I ached with the sorrow of love. As I walked beside Blue on the main road down towards the paddock where the trapper had the apples stored in his tent, I pretended that Macca was with me. I spoke to him. Yes, you're with me, that's your pale face I see, and your breast, wherein beats your poet's heart. My lost love, my lost love, I implore thee, where art thou? I had translated this from an Italian song, Mio Bel Alpino, which I'd heard the Italians singing. In a melancholy voice I chanted it, Dove sei stato, Mio Bel Alpino? Where have you been, my beautiful Alpine soldier? 
Here comes Charles, exclaimed Blue. Hello, Charles. Hello, Spot, old man. Gee whiz, Gorblani, where are you going with the bag? asked Charlie, his hat, which was covered with dust, had apparently come before him all the way up the road in Spot's mouth. Walnuts clicked in his ragged pocket. Give us a walnut, Charles. Walnut? Gee whiz, what do you mean by walnut? I haven't had one for years. He chewed away at one and rolled his eye at us with an empty, jolly and faraway look. Where are you going with the bag? Steve says Blackmore's got cases of apples in his tent. We thought about going down to have a look. Gee whiz, apples. Come on, child, you can carry the bag and we'll give you a few. But we want the biggest share. We've been living on quinces for weeks now. Talk about sick of them. It's inexpressible. Come on. Charles hung back in the breaching, cracking walnuts and rolling his eyes. Gee whiz, I don't know. What would Mother say? But, Charles, you're over 30. What can she say? <laughs> All right. Charles fell into step with us, and in the growing darkness, we advanced on the river bank and drew near the tent. We began to whisper in case Blackmore was around. The river almost drowned our voices, and we got irritated and yelled, What? after every remark. You sure Blackmore's gone? whispered Charles. Yes, goes into Myrtleford every weekend. Smell those apples, Charles? What? in a loud voice. Smell those flaming apples? Can't hear. Smell what? Your feet, man, your feet, anything. Can't be my feet. Only had a bath once in my life, added Blue. What? Whose wife? Oh, shut up, child. Get into the tent. Who, me? Get in? Gee whiz, there's nowhere to get into. I wouldn't untie that knot of his for anything. He'd know for sure that we'd been here, and I'd get the blame. No one lives anywhere near Blackmore but us. Well, get in and throw out the apples, or bag them for us in the tent. In the soft darkness, the river talked gloomily in its broken bass, and across the lonely paddock, the wind blew faint sounds. Sure no one's coming, whispered Charl agonizingly as he crawled around on his stomach, looking for a bit of space to crawl in under. We felt around too and got a place that would admit a rabbit if it wasn't in a hurry. Here you are, Charl, in you get. Go blimey, said Charl. What do you think I am? Too good to be true. Hurry up, dear, and get those large hindquarters under the flap. With sundry bursting and splitting sounds, Charles got in under the edge of the tent and stumbled over Blackmore's table, knocking down his hurricane lamp and treading on it. In the dark night, his muffled oaths seemed to come out of space. We stood beside the tent and, thrusting our heads forth, sniffed the wind. Got any apples, Charles? Gee whiz, wait on. I can feel something. Wait on. Listen. Is that anyone coming? Are you two keeping yow? Nothing coming, Charles. Get the apples into the bag. Hurry up. The river murmured in the night, gulped, sobbed, and hurried on. The hushed trees bent above us, contributing to the dreams of us and our unborn. Ah, night, what means all this? A sudden hard footstep sounded to our right. It was regular and determined. We flapped the tent quickly. Charles, here comes Blackmore. We're going. Get out of the tent. Hurry up. And we stood for a moment to wait for Charlie before we ran. He moaned faintly and trod on the hurricane lamp again and crunched it under his feet. Gore blimey, gee whiz, I can't get out. Give us a hand. Rip open the front of the tent. Can't do it. He'd know. You said he would. Come on, quick. Can't you find the way you got in? Here he is. The footsteps were close and determined. We ran, and as we ran, we heard Charles ripping the tent from top to bottom as he burst out of it. How we ran, leaping and zigzagging from side to side, cowering under bushes, tripping over logs and circling around swamps, we dashed off into the wilderness with a dark figure pursuing us and calling out harshly, over Sullivan's property we ran, leaping the barbed wire fence like kangaroos and fell flat on our faces to bound up again and rush into the thick scrub at the foot of the ranges. The relentless figure followed us and we fell down and hid in a patch of bracken fern. Our pursuer, breathing hard, sat down near it and mumbled to himself. For half an hour we crouched there and when at last we emerged, he'd gone. We set out towards home 
Across the paddocks, we saw a white object moving. That spot, explained, exclaimed Blue. I bet Charlie's there. Wonder how he got on. Come over and see. We ran across the paddocks again in the direction of Spot, but when we got near Charlie, he took to his heels and ran back towards the rangers. It was a long time before Blue could catch up with him. At last, she found him lying in the ferns, panting with exhaustion, but she could hardly get near him because he'd rolled himself up like a porcupine and talked in a false voice, saying that he was an old pensioner looking somewhere for a shakedown. Don't be a fool, Charlie, said Blue. Listen to me. It's only us, me and Steve. You're lucky. Blackmore chased us into the rangers. Call Blarney. Go on, replied Charles feebly. Well, we'll sneak around to his tent and get the apples. I threw the bag out ahead of me. Even if he's there, he mightn't have found them. He must be there because he chased us. Didn't he chase you, Charlie? I don't know. I didn't wait to find out. I just ran and sang out to you two to wait for me. But I couldn't see you at all. I can't see much at night. I just kept on going till I fell down in a patch of bracken. I had a bit of a rest. Then I started out looking for you. Where was that patch of bracken, Charles? Over Sullivan's barbed wire fence, just at the foot of the ranges. Why? Oh, nothing. But we thought a lot over what he'd told us. Well, it was a lucky escape for us all. When we got to Blackmore's tent, there was only a cow feeding outside us. There was nothing in the tent except the big hole Charles had torn in it as he leapt out like a frog. Halfway home, we thought we'd like a nice apple, and opening the bag, we put our hands in, laughing with anticipation. Charles bit deep. By Jove, they're quinces, he said. <laughs> we sat listlessly with one in each hand. Can't you smell, Charles? Well, can't you, he said irritably. I thought you said they were apples, Steve. I wish I hadn't jumped out of that tent like that. Do you think Blackmore will notice that tear much? We said we had no doubt but that he might pass over it and not notice a thing until the rain came. But then again, the tear had such an uncanny likeness to Charles' figure that Blackmore might be forgiven if he entertained certain suspicions. After which we took the quinces home and continued to live on them. And then just, just this, I'm just going to read another two paragraphs. Back in Gippsland for the next season, the sisters finally separate and Blue goes home to get married and Steve stays on. Blue left on a scorching morning. We stood outside the hut, be I beside the mare and Blue beside me, holding out her little yellow hand. The hot sun burnt down on us and stamped that lonely hand on my memory. I looked about and saw the dead trees above us, the lonely gully around with bush and fern up the hill and the grey wire netting fence dividing us from Lake's property. A gut hawk flew overhead, whistling on an ascending scale. Far away, the black crows cried, Ah, ah, dead horse, dead horse. From the shaggy trunks of the gum trees, the red sap dripped as dark as bullock's blood. Big hollow logs lay around with the heaviness of the dead, their boughs spread out like arms. When I come back tonight, Blue, you'll be gone. Steve, Steve, why have I got to leave you? What days we've had together as pea pickers. I'd rather follow you than marry anyone. Soon we'll be old and we'll look back on the adventures we might have had and regret we didn't have more. I do wish you'd let me stay with you, but you're thinking of Macca all the time. Oh, if you'd only let me follow you. I love your mind, your thoughts and your poetry. I understand it all. And we won't quarrel anymore. We'll try not to anyhow. No, Blue, I said calmly and coldly. You must go home. Someday we'll be together again, perhaps. But you've given your word to marry and you can't break it now. Poor Blue. She took my hand tightly in hers when I mounted the mare and looked up into my face. No, Steve, we'll never go pee-picking again. Goodbye, Steve. Goodbye, Blue. I touched the mare with my heel and rode away into the bush, 
riding aimlessly all day, anywhere, until night. When I came back to the gully, my heart ached. The owls hooted and the stars shone, and the galvanized iron walls of the hut went spink, spink, as they contracted after the heat of the day. And I opened the door and walked in, and I was alone. Helen Adam is a bard. In performance, she chants her poems to her own melodies. Many of her poems are in the tradition of the old Scottish and English ballads, stories of fantasy and gore, of magic and revenge. Others are in a strange and compelling mixture of U.S. urban slang, wild humor, and ballad music. Always there is simplicity of structure and language. Born in Scotland in 1909, her father a Presbyterian minister, she was a child prodigy. She composed her first poem at four and had had two books published by the time she was 15. Adam worked as a journalist in London and came to the States in 1939. In the 50s and 60s in San Francisco, she was close to poets such as Robert Duncan and Allen Ginsberg. Her ballad opera, San Francisco's Burning, in which she performed the role of the Worm Queen, was a big hit. She came to New York in 1965 and worked at odd jobs, including that of Messenger, until she was 70. Now 80, she lives in New York but is very ill and unable to be here. Her books have been published by small presses, Hanging Loose, Culture, Toothpaste, etc., In 1975, Helicon Press published her selected poems. In a sense, she's not truly lost. Her work does appear in anthologies, such as No More Masks. However, she is surely neglected. The bardic tradition in poetry is not dead. We hope it is only in temporary eclipse. The poem you will hear tonight, Deep in the Subway, is from her book Stone Cold Gothic, published by The Culture, spelled K-U-L-C-H-U-R, Foundation. It will be read by poet Naomi Raplansky. Deep in the Subway. Deep in the subway, I sit lonely, riding the BMT. Far, far away on the sands of Coney, frolics the salty sea. Straight is the track to Coney Island, wheels in the darkness sing. Far, far ahead, the waves run shining under a seagull's wing. Where are those sands of distant Coney, wished for so long in vain? Past Burrow Hall and DeKalb Street Station sings the shuddering train. After Neck Road, 
in the early morning, out beyond Sheepshead Bay, cool and remote lie the sands of Coney, empty at break of day. So many miles, so many stations, before I reach that strand where the small waves quietly breaking flit up and down the sand. I, in whose heart the North Sea echoes and the Pacific roars, why should I crave the sad Atlantic Splashing on Brooklyn's shores. Splashing on shores by millions trampled. Still it's sublime to me. Cluttered with garbage. Spoiled, polluted. Still it's the sea. The sea. Under the city, darkly, I travel, locked in a lurching car, dreaming of sea waves. Deep in the subway, Coney, so far, so far. Our last selection will be by Bessie Head. Bessie Head was born in South Africa in 1937. Her mother, a white woman of Scottish background, was committed to a mental institution by her family when she became pregnant by a black man who worked for them. Bessie Head was born in the institution. In 1964, at the age of 27, she fled the race laws of South Africa to settle in Botswana. A stateless person, she had to report regularly to the police. After a mental breakdown, she worked in a village cooperative as a gardener, together with local villagers and black and white refugees and exiles. She died at age 49 in 1986. Head was skeptical of political movements and critical of traditional African institutions. Her vision was of cooperative organization at a local level, free of racial, social, and sexual inequities. The theme of power and subordination is constant in her three novels and her short stories. Between Black and White, Black and Black of different tribes, Male and Female, Hallucination and Reality. All her protagonists are in some ways outsiders, in her last largely autobiographical novel, Question of, Questions of Power, she moves back and forth without demarcation between a hallucinatory world of sexual domination and the quiet, productive world of the village cooperative. 
At the end of the book, the protagonist emerges from madness. Quote, As she fell asleep, she placed one soft hand over her land. It was a gesture of belonging. End quote. The story of village life that we'll hear tonight is from her book of short stories, The Collector of Treasures. Margot Jefferson will read it. It's called Life. In 1963, when the borders were first set up between Botswana and South Africa, pending Botswana's independence in 1966, all Botswanan-born citizens had to return home. Everything had been mingled up in the old colonial days, and the traffic of people to and fro between the two countries had been a steady flow for years and years. More often, especially if they were migrant laborers working in the mines, their period of settlement was brief. But many people had settled there in permanent employment. It was these settlers who were disrupted and sent back to village life in a mainly rural country. On their return, they brought with them bits and pieces of a foreign culture and city habits which they had absorbed. Village people reacted in their own way. What they liked and was beneficial to them, they absorbed. For instance, the faith-healing cult churches, which instantly took hold like wildfire. What was harmful to them, they rejected. The murder of life had this complicated undertone of rejection. Life had left the village as a little girl of ten years old with her parents for Johannesburg. They had died in the meanwhile, and on Life's return seventeen years later, she found, as was village custom, that she still had a home in the village. On mentioning that her name was Life Morapati, the villagers immediately and obligingly took her to the Morapati yard in the central part of the village. The family yard had remained intact, just as they had left it, except that it looked pathetic in its desolation. The thatch of the mud huts had patches of soil over them where the ants had made their nests. The wooden pikes, the wooden poles that supported the rafters of the huts had tilted to an angle as their base had been eaten through by the ants. The rubber hedge had grown to a disproportionate size and enclosed the yard in a gloom of shadows that kept out the sunlight. Weeds and grass of many seasonal rains entangled themselves in the yard. Life's future neighbors, a group of women, continued to stand near her. We can help you to put your yard in order, they said kindly. We are very happy that a child of ours has returned home. They were impressed with the smartness of this city girl. They generally wore old clothes and kept their very best things for special occasions like weddings. And even then, those best things might just be ordinary cotton prints. The girl wore an expensive cream costume of linen material tailored to fit her tall, full figure. She had a bright, vivacious, friendly manner and laughed freely and loudly. Her speech was rapid and a little hysterical, but that was in keeping with her whole personality. She is going to bring us a little light, the women said among themselves as they went off to fetch their work tools. They were always looking for the light, and by that they meant that they were ever alert to receive new ideas that would freshen up the ordinariness and everydayness of village life. A woman who lived near the Moripati yard had offered life hospitality until her own yard was set in order. She picked up the shining new suitcases and preceded life to her own home, where life was immediately surrounded with all kinds of endearing attentions. A low stool was placed in a shady place for her to sit on. A little girl came shyly forward with a bowl of water for her to wash her hands. And following on this, a tray with a bowl of meat and porridge was set before her so that she could revive herself after her long journey home. The other women briskly entered her yard with hoes to scratch out the weeds and grass baskets of earth. 
and buckets of water to re-smear the wood walls, wood mud walls. And they had found two idle men to rectify the precarious tilt of the wooden poles of the mud hut. These were the sort of gestures people always offered. But they were pleased to note that the newcomer seemed to have an endless stream of money, which she flung around generously. The work party in her yard would suggest that the meat of a goat, slowly simmering in a great iron pot, would help the work to move with the swing. And life would immediately produce the money to purchase the goat, and also tea, milk, sugar, pots of porridge, or anything the workers expressed a preference for. So that these two weeks of making life's yard beautiful for her seemed like one long wedding feast. People usually only ate that much at weddings. How is it that you have so much money, our child, one of the women at last asked curiously. Money flows like water in Johannesburg, life replied with her gay and hysterical laugh. You just have to know how to get it. The women received this with caution. They said among themselves that their child could not have lived a very good life in Johannesburg. Thrift and honesty were the dominant themes of village life, and everyone knew that one could not be honest and rich at the same time. They counted every penny and knew how they had acquired it with hard work. They never imagined money as a bottomless pit without end. It always had an end and was hard to come by in this dry, semi-desert land. They predicted that she would soon settle down. Intelligent girls got jobs in the post office sooner or later. Life had had the sort of varied career that a city like Johannesburg offered a lot of black women. She had been a singer, beauty queen, advertising model, and prostitute. None of these careers were available in the village. For the illiterate women, there were farming and housework. For the literate, teaching, nursing, and clerical work. The first wave of women life attracted to herself were the farmers and housewives. They were the intensely conservative, hardcore center of village life. It did not take them long to shun her completely because men started turning up in an unending stream. What caused a stir of amazement was that life was the first and the only woman in the village to make a living business out of selling herself. The men were paying her for her services. People's attitude to sex was broad and generous. It was recognized as a necessary part of human life, that it ought to be available whenever possible, like food or water, or else one's life would be extinguished or one would get dreadfully ill. To prevent these catastrophes from happening, men and women generally had quite a lot of sex, but on a respectable and human basis, with financial considerations coming in as an afterthought. When the news spread around that this had now become a business in life's yard, she attracted to herself a second wave of women, the beer brewers of the village. The bear-brewing women were a gay and lovable crowd who had emancipated themselves some time ago. They were drunk every day and could be seen staggering about the village, usually with a wide-eyed, illegitimate baby hitched onto their hips. They also talked and laughed loudly and slapped each other on the back and had developed a language all their own. Boyfriends, yes. Husbands, oh, oh no, no. Do this, do that. We want to rule ourselves. But they too were subject to the respectable order of village life. Many men passed through their lives but they were all for a time steady boyfriends. The usual arrangement was, mother, you help me and I'll help you. This was just so much eyewash. The men hung around, lived on the resources of the women, and during all this time they would part with about two rand of their own money. After about three months, a tally would be made. Boyfriend, the woman would say, love is love and money is money. You owe me money. And he'd never be seen again. But another scoundrel would take his place. And so the story went on and on. They found their queen in life, and like all queens, they set her activities apart from themselves. They never attempted to extract money from the constant stream of men because they did not know how, but they liked her yard. Very soon, the den and riot of a Johannesburg township was duplicated on a minor scale in the central part of the village. A transistor radio blared the day long. 
Men and women reeled around drunk and laughing, and food and drink flowed like milk and honey. The people of the surrounding village watched this phenomenon with pursed lips and commented darkly, they'll all be destroyed one day like Sodom and Gomorrah. Life, like the beer-brewing women, had a language of her own, too. When her friends expressed surprise at the huge quantities of steak, eggs, liver, kidney, and rice they ate in her yard, the sort of food they could now and then afford but would not dream of purchasing, she replied in a carefree, offhand way, I'm used to handling big money. They did not believe it. They were too solid to trust to this kind of luck which had such shaky foundations. And as though to offset some doom that might be just around the corner, they often brought along their own scraggy village chickens reared in their yards as offerings for the day's round of meals. And one of life's philosophies on life, which they were to recall with trembling a few months later, was, my motto is, live fast, die young, and have a good-looking corpse. All this was said with the bold, free joy of a woman who had broken all of the social taboos. They never followed her to those dizzy heights. A few months after life's arrival in the village, the first hotel with its pub opened. It was initially shunned by all the women, and even the beer brewers considered they hadn't fallen that low yet. The pub was also associated with the idea of selling oneself. It became life's favorite business venue. It simplified the business of making appointments for the following day. None of the men questioned their behavior, nor how such an unnatural situation had been allowed to develop. They could get all the sex they needed for free in the village, but it seemed to fascinate them that they should pay for it for the first time. They had quickly got to the stage where they communicated with life in shorthand language. When? And she would reply, 10 o'clock. When? 2 o'clock. When? 4 o'clock. And so on. And there would be the roar of cheap small talk and much buttock slapping. It was her element, and her feverish, glittering, brilliant black eyes swept around the bar, looking for everything and nothing at the same time. Then one evening, Death walked quietly into the bar. It was Lasego, the cattleman, just come in from his cattle post, where he'd been occupied for a period of three months. Men built up their own individual reputations in the village, and Lasego's was one of the most respected and honored. People said of him, when Lasego has got money and you need it, he will give you what he has got, and he won't trouble you about the date of payment. He was honored for another reason also, for the clarity and quiet indifference of his thinking. People often found difficulty in sorting out issues or the truth in any debatable manner. He had a way of keeping his head above water, listening to an argument, and always pronouncing the final judgment. Well, the truth about this matter is... He was also one of the most successful cattlemen with a balance of 7,000 rand in the bank. And whenever he came into the village, he lounged around in gossip or attended village kagotla meetings so that people had a saying, well, I must be getting about my business. I'm not like the Sago with money in the bank. As usual, the brilliant radar eyes swept feverishly around the bar. They did the rounds twice that evening in the same manner, each time coming to a dead stop for a full second on the thin, dark, concentrated expression of Lasego's face. There wasn't any other man in the bar with that expression. They all had sheepish, inane-looking faces. He was the nearest thing she had seen for a long time to the Johannesburg gangsters she'd associated with, the same small economical gestures, the same power and control. All the men near him quieted down and began to consult with him in low, earnest voices. They were talking about the news of the day, which never reached the remote cattle posts. Whereas all the other men had to approach her, the third time her radar eyes swept round, he stood his ground, turned his head slowly, and then jerked it back slightly in a silent command. Come here. She moved immediately to his end of the bar. Hello, he said, in an astonishingly tender voice, and a smile flickered across his dark, reserved face. 
That was the sum total of Masego, that basically he was a kind and tender man, that he liked women and had been so successful in that sphere that he took his dominance and success for granted. But they looked at each other from their own worlds and came to fatal conclusions. She saw in him the power and maleness of the gangsters. He saw the freshness and surprise of an entirely new kind of woman. He left all his women after a time because they bored him. And like all people who live an ordinary humdrum life, he was attracted to that undertone of hysteria in her. Very soon they stood up and walked out together. A shocked silence fell upon the bar. The men exchanged looks with each other, and the way these things communicate themselves, they knew that all the other appointments had been canceled while Lisego was there. And as though speaking their thoughts aloud, Sianana, one of Lisego's friends, commented, Lisego just wants to try it out like we all did because it is something new. He won't stay there when he finds out that it is rotten to the core. But Sianana was to find out that he did not fully understand his friend. Lisego was not seen at his usual lounging places for a week. And when he emerged again, it was to announce that he was to marry. The news was received with cold hostility. Everyone talked of nothing else. It was as, as impossible as if a crime was being committed before their very eyes. Sianana once more made himself the spokesman. He waylaid Lasego on his way to the village Kogotla. I am much surprised by the rumors about you, Lasego, he said bluntly. You can't marry that woman. She's a terrible fuckabout. Lasego stared back at him steadily, then he said in his quiet and different way, Who isn't here? <laughs> Sianana shrugged his shoulders. The subtleties were beyond him, but whatever else was going on, it wasn't commercial, it was human. But did that make it any better? Lasego liked to bugger up an argument like that with a straightforward point. As they walked along together, Sianana shook his head several times to indicate that something important was eluding him. Until at last, with a smile, Lasego said, She has told me all about her bad ways. Bear over. Sianana merely compressed his lips and remained silent. Life made the announcement, too, after she was married to all her beer-brewing friends. All my old ways are over, she said. I have now become a woman. She still looked happy and hysterical. Everything came to her too easily, men, money, and now marriage. The bear brewers were not slow to point out to her, with the same amazement with which they had exclaimed over the steak and eggs, that there were many women in the village who had cried their eyes out over Lasego. She was very flattered. Their lives, at least Lasego's, did not change much with marriage. He still liked lounging around the village. The rainy season had come, and life was easy for the cattlemen at this time because there was enough water and grazing for the animals. He wasn't the kind of man to fuss about the house, and during this time he made only three pronouncements about the household. He took control of all the money. She had to ask him for it and state what it was to be used for. Then he didn't like the transistor radio blaring the whole day long. Women who keep that thing going the whole day have nothing in their heads, he said. Then he looked down at her from a great height and commented finally and quietly, If you go with those men again, I will kill you. This was said so indifferently and quietly as though he never really expected his authority and dominance to encounter any challenge. She hadn't the mental equipment to analyze what had hit her, hit her, but something seemed to strike her a terrible blow behind the head. She instantly succumbed to the blow and rapidly began to fall apart. On the surface, the everyday round of village life was deadly dull in its even unbroken monotony. One day slipped easily into another, drawing water, stamping corn, cooking food. But within this, there were enormous tugs and pulls between people. Custom demanded that people care about each other. And all day long, there was this constant traffic of people in and out of each other's lives. 
Someone had to be buried. Sympathy and help were demanded for this event. There were money loans, newborn babies, sorrow, trouble, gifts. Lasego had long been king of this world. There was every day a long string of people wanting something or wanting to give back something in gratitude for a past favor. It was the basic strength of village life. It created people whose sympathetic and emotional responses were always fully awakened, and it rewarded them by richly filling in a void that was one big gaping yawn. When the hysteria and cheap rowdiness were taken away, life fell into the yawn. She had nothing inside herself to cope with this way of life that had finally caught up with her. The beer-brewing women were still there. They still liked her yard because Lasego was casual and easygoing. And all that went on in it now, like the old men squatting in corners with gifts, Lasego, I had good luck with my hunting today. I caught two rabbits and I want to share one with you, was simply the Tsuana way of life they two lived. In keeping with their queen's new status, they said, we are women and must do something. They collected earth and dung and smeared and decorated life's courtyard. They drew water for her, stamped her corn, and things looked quite ordinary on the surface because Lasego also liked a pot of beer. No one noticed the expression of anguish that had crept into life's face. The boredom of the daily round was almost throttling her to death. And no matter which way she looked, from the beer brewer to her husband to all the people who called, she found no one with whom she could communicate what had become an actual physical pain. After a month of it, she was near collapse. One morning she mentioned her agony to the beer brewers. I think I have made a mistake. Married life doesn't suit me. And they replied sympathetically, you are just getting used to it. After all, it's a different life in Johannesburg. The neighbors went further. They were impressed by a marriage they thought could never succeed. They started saying that one never ought to judge a human being who was both good and bad. Lasego had turned a bad woman into a good woman, which was something they had never seen before. Just as they were saying this and nodding their approval, Sodom and Gomorrah started up all over again. Lasego had received word late in the evening that the newborn calves at his cattle post were dying, and early the next morning he was off again in his truck. The old, reckless, wild woman awakened from a state near death with a huge sigh of relief. The transistor blared, the food flowed again, the men and women reeled around dead drunk. Simply by their din, they beat off all the unwanted guests who nodded their heads grimly. When Lasego came back, they were going to tell him this was no wife for him. Three days later, Lasego unexpectedly was back in the village. The calves were all anemic, and they had to be brought to the vet for an injection. He drove his truck straight to the village, to the vet's camp. One of the beer brewers saw him and hurried in alarm to her friend. The husband is back, she whispered fearfully, pulling life to one side. <sighs> she replied irritably. She did dispel the noise, the men and the drink but a wild anger was driving her to break out of a way of life that was like death to her. She told one of the men she'd see him at six o'clock. At about five o'clock, Lasego drove into the yard with the calves. There was no one immediately around to greet him. He jumped out of the truck and walked to one of the huts, pushing open the door. Life was sitting on the bed. She looked up silently and sullenly. He was a little surprised, but his mind was still detracted by the calves, distracted by the calves, he had to settle them in the yard for the night. Will you make some tea? He said, I'm very thirsty. There's no sugar in the house, she said. I'll have to get some. Something irritated him, but he hurried back to the calves, and his wife walked out of the yard. Lasego had just settled the calves when a neighbor walked in. He was very angry. Lasego, he said bluntly, we told you not to marry that woman. If you go to the yard of Radifa Bolo now, you'll find her in bed with him. 
Go and see for yourself that you may leave this bad woman. The sago stared quietly at him for a moment, then at his own pace, as though there were no haste or chaos in his life, he went to the hut they used as a kitchen. A tinful of sugar stood there. He turned and found a knife in the corner, one of the large ones he used for slaughtering cattle, and slipped it into his shirt. Then at his own pace, he walked to the yard of Raditha Bolo. It looked deserted, except that the door of one of the huts was partially opened and one closed. He kicked open the door of the closed hut, and the man within shouted out in alarm. On seeing Lasego, he sprang cowering into a corner. Lasego jerked his head back, indicating that the man should leave the room. But Raditha Bolo did not run far. He wanted to enjoy himself, so he pressed himself into the shadows of the rubber hedge. He expected the usual husband and wife scene, the irate husband cursing at the top of his voice, the wife hysterical in her lies and self-defense. Only Lysenko walked out of the yard, and he held in his hand a huge blood-stained knife. On seeing the knife, Raditha Bolo immediately fell to the ground in a dead faint. There were a few people on the footpath, and they shrank into the rubber hedge at the side of that knife. Very soon, a wail arose. People clutched at their heads and began running in all directions, crying, yo, 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 in their shock. It was some time before anyone thought of calling the police. They were so disordered because murder, outright and violent, was a most uncommon and rare occurrence in village life. It seemed that only Lusego kept cool that evening. He was sitting quietly in his yard when the whole police force came tearing him. They looked at him in horror and began to thoroughly upbraid him for looking so unperturbed. You have taken a human life, and you're cool like that, they said angrily. You're going to hang by the neck for this. It's a serious crime to take a human life. He did not hang by the neck. He kept that cool, head-above-water, indifferent look right up to the day of his trial. Then he looked up at the judge. ...in the house and left to buy some. My neighbor, Mathata, came in after this and said that my wife was not at the shops, but in the yard of Raditha Bolo. He said I ought to go and see what she was doing in the yard of Raditha Bolo. I thought I would check up about the sugar first, and in the kitchen I found a tin full of it. I was sorry and surprised to see this. Then a fire seemed to fill my heart. I thought that if she was doing a bad thing with Raditha Bolo, as Mathata said, I'd better kill her, because I cannot understand a wife who could be so corrupt. Lasego had been doing this for years, passing judgment on all aspects of life in his straightforward, uncomplicated way. The judge, who was a white man and therefore not involved in Suwana customs and its debates, was as much impressed by Lasego's manner as all the village men had been. This is a crime of passion, he said sympathetically, so there are extenuating circumstances. But it is still a serious crime to take a human life, so I sentence you to five years' imprisonment. Lesego's friend Sianana, who was to take care of his business affairs while he was in jail, came to visit Lesego, still shaking his head. Something was eluding him about the whole business, as though it had been planned from the very beginning. Lesego, he said with deep sorrow, why did you kill that fuckabout? You had legs to walk away. You could have walked away. Are you trying to show us that rivers never cross here? There are good women and good men, but they seldom join their lives together always this mess and foolishness. A song by Jim Reeves was very popular at that time. That's what happens when two worlds collide. When they were drunk, the beer-brewing women used to sing it and start weeping. 
maybe they had the last word on the whole affair.